0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 76, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Mark Kane owns Dripping Springs Garden with his partner, Michael Crane. Located in northwestern Arkansas, Dripping Springs has about four acres in production with half of that in cut flowers. Most of the flowers are sold at Fayetteville Farmer's Market, while the vegetables are sold primarily to local retailers and through a small CSA program. Mark shares the story of how Dripping Springs built the market for local organic flowers in Fayetteville, and how they continue to maintain a strong market presence in the face of increasing competition. We dig into the wedding market, practical farmer's market strategies, pricing, and how to produce a high-quality cut flower. We also hear about Mark's journey to starting Dripping Springs in 1984, including his encounters with some of the great thinkers of sustainable agriculture back in the early 1980s. And we dig into how Dripping Springs manages to farm on steep hillsides with a minimum of erosion and a maximum of water harvesting as well as the well-respected internship program at the farm. Mark also tells us about the work structures they put in place to maintain a vibrant quality of life more than 30 years into this farming operation. Mark offered a ton of value in this show and I really appreciated his time. I think you're going to enjoy this show and get just as much out of it as I did. Thanks so much for joining us. Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. This episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com. Mark Kane, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast.
1: Thanks, Chris. Thanks for inviting me.
0: So glad that you could make it work today here. In early July, you, you mentioned you actually just got off the mower
1: yeah, it rained a bunch last week. So, of course, everything needs to be mowed. And uh, mowing is something that I do most of the mowing around here. So I'm on and off for of the mower quite a bit. So it'd be nice if we could
0: start off by having you kind of give us the groundwork for Dripping Springs Garden. You guys have been where you are there in northern Arkansas for a really long time.
1: Yes, yeah, since we were young, <laughs> 32 <laughs> years now. This is a 32nd summer. It's hard to believe, but and it's, it's wonderful. Actually, to be happy in the same place for so long. But yeah, we we bought this place in '84. We'll go back to that. Yeah, th- this this point in our history, we um, we have about four acres of certified organic production. Um, we certified by the – actually, by the state of Oklahoma is uh, authorized to certify here in Arkansas since we don't have a state certification program. And we've been certified off and on, most, mostly on ever since about 1988 because we inherited a two-acre blueberry field. Um, and we needed to join an organic marketing cooperative early on. Most of the field is uh, in raised beds and uh, – the bottom part, everything is on a – we're actually on a a north-facing slope with woods all around us, uh, a slope of about 30%. Just if you can picture about a six-acre opening in a – Thirty or forty acres of woods that are Ozark hills, and ending on a little beautiful little stream with a very clear water that we irrigate from. And our house, uh, houses and greenhouses are all down here, very close to the to the uh, stream actually. And all around us are the gardens that are on terrace raised beds uh, that radiate out from the house and basically encircle most of the buildings. Um, The original two-acre blueberry field that is on what here in the Ozarks we call a bench, which is a little bit more level area right above the terraced uh, gardens below. Those have mostly been taken out since they were about seven years old when they got here, and they got to be about 30 years old and started... uh, you know, producing less and less and it was hard to get new plants established in them. So we mostly have taken those out and then we have other crops up there, a mixture of zinnias, tomatoes, you name it. We have eggplant and squashes and all number of things up there. Also in a um, basically strip cropped in what was a former blueberry field. We have about four four to five interns helping us every summer. And we go to three markets a week, about 50 miles away. An hour's drive from here in Fayetteville in the northwest corner. Um, We drive to market Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday from beginning of April until Thanksgiving. And we deliver. That's our main market is the farmer's market. That's the the big bulk of our income and always has been. That's where we started. I actually moved here because uh, having of having seen the market back in 1981 and thought well, what a perfect little farmer's market situation it was. It was much smaller than back in 1984. It was started in 1974. So the market has a fairly long history. Um, but we're also, if people know where Eureka Springs is, it's a tourist town north of here, about 30 miles. So we're situated here way in the outback on the dead end road, right down here nestled by hills right on the creek. So it's a isolated, beautiful location, and we drive everything out of here. What do you use to drive it out of there? Are you hauling stuff to market in pickup trucks or... We have a 12-foot box truck, and we also have a 8-foot bed Chevy truck. It takes both of those trucks. And last week, we actually uh, hired one of our interns' uh, trucks to help get some extra product in also. So it takes a couple of different trucks to get everything in for a Saturday. The 12-foot box truck is adequate for the weekday markets and our CSA because we do have a couple of restaurant accounts and a Whole food store buys from us, not Whole Foods particularly, but dark Natural Foods and Fayetteville buys from us wholesale. And uh, then we have a small CSA that we deliver to once a week. So all those deliveries happen on the same runs that go to town. We try to minimize our uh, running to town. So there's basically three trips, three marketing trips a week uh, all summer long. And then there, there's one marketing trip a week in the wintertime because we do have a bunch of hoop houses and we produce uh, winter greens for for wholesaling during the wintertime for the restaurant. How cold does it get in Arkansas over the winter? It totally varies. Back in the late 80s, we went through a couple of winters where it got to minus 20 briefly and stayed below zero for a week. These days, we don't get below zero except maybe every three or four years, but it's really variable. It was minus 18 just uh, three or four years ago, and we have a big Patch of timber bamboo here that uh, we actually planted. I'm sorry to say, but uh, we have found uses for it. But it 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 tends to kill to the ground when temperatures are get below zero, and so we always uh, we mark time that way, it's like when the bamboo got killed. <laughs> but in the in the summer in the summertime, uh, summertime is also variable. In uh, 2012, it got up to 106 in late July. It was pretty miserable summer. Last year, I don't think it ever broke 95 or 96, but the kind of weather that we're having right now in the low 90s is pretty typical for July. And it can be either very dry or moderately wet.
0: And you guys do vegetables, but you also do a a large quantity of flowers, right?
1: Yeah. Actually, our plantings are about 50-50. If we take all of our bed maps and add them up to what crops we've planted during the year. It turns out to be 50-50 or so. Uh, A lot of people at the market know us for our cut flowers since we've really developed that niche since the early 90s. We we always had flowers as part of the mix because that was part of my training in the Chadwick Gardens in California. There was always a mix of everything and we simply kept growing more of what people wanted to buy. So Didn't take us long to figure out we weren't going to be able to sell three or four cases of bok choy in Fayetteville on a Saturday morning. And uh, (laughs) we kept growing, we kept growing more and more flowers and it's been really satisfying. It's been a very big part of the financial success that we've had with the farm. So. We have been members of the uh, Specialty Cut Flower Growers Association. We know a lot of the people involved in that organization and um, try to stay in touch with the flower growers in the region and and actually outside of our region to see what's happening, um, you know, for best sales and timing and hoop house production and all that. So our hoop houses and, and our field crops get rotated through flowers and vegetables. Our customers in Fayetteville, uh, we put on such a big display of flowers that uh, this overwhelms the vegetables somewhat, but there are vegetables out there for sale also. A lot of our vegetables are sold through our CSA and through our wholesale account simply because there are so many vegetables on the market. And we've developed the cut flower niche specifically over the last 20 years. So um, a lot of our vegetables don't show up on the farmer's market.
0: And are you doing the cut flowers through the CSA and through your wholesale accounts as well?
1: Uh, We do. We do maintain a small uh, cut flower display at Ozark Natural Foods. I uh, started doing that about six years ago near the registers. And um, we do have a cut flower uh, option for our CSA, but not that many people, you know, some some people, I think we're only making about nine bou- bouquets a week for our CSA. We don't actually push that. We don't advertise our CSA at all, um, be- simply because we most of our production is taken up for our farmer's marketing. Um, the vast bulk of the flowers are sold to customers, that are buying bouquets at markets. So on a typical Saturday morning, we'll have usually about five people working behind stand, making bouquets and putting them out in a big display um, for prices that vary from six to $20. Um, And then people can have custom made bouquets and often through those people that we need at market that we've gotten into the wedding business and uh, for the last some years we've been doing special events and wedding bouquets uh brides bouquets and bridesmaids boutonnieres uh buffet table that type of thing so we do get contacted quite a bit by the up-and-coming young brides who want a local look and um So, we are first, we congratulate them on their choice to buy local organic flowers, (laughs) and then we try to steer them in the direction of the type of things that we're going to have. So, we actually have a spreadsheet that shows the production year, so they can kind of take a look at the different flowers that we have, different parts of the year. How do you price something like wedding flowers? Oh, this is a, hmm. You can check with your local to see what they're charging, but it will be, you're in in a different arena. We are cultivating a different arena of brides than normally the specialty florists in our area. There are a lot of people that want to get married and who do not want to spend $2,000 on flowers. And there are a lot of people who want to spend $2,000 on flowers or more. We tend to do weddings that are $500 or less, that are simple and in the terms of the bride wants the bride bouquet and she wants, she has seven maids and she has seven groomsmen and I have some bouquets that they want to have on the altar and for the dining tables for the rehearsal dinner and all that's easy for us to do. And uh, since we have all the production here, it's not a matter of having to buy the flowers or fly them in like the florist has to do. So, um, you know, our, our, Bridal bouquets might range from $50 to $100, and maid arrangements might range anywhere from 25 to 60 And if you go to a florist often, they're not going to talk to you about a bridal arrangement for less than $200. But then they're having to buy all of the flowers.
0: I was going to ask about how you manage the supply, but when you describe you know, a $500 wedding for flowers, that's probably not like a huge bump over what you're already doing on a weekly basis at Farmer's Market.
1: No, for the farmer's market, I'd say we're probably we're selling somewhere in the neighborhood of about $3,000 worth of flowers uh, a week, I would say. And then uh, our vegetable sales and CSA sales all come in over the top of that on a weekly basis. But that'd be my best guess for just flowers only. Uh, It's pretty easy for us to sell a couple thousand dollars worth of flowers on a Saturday morning. Now you said that the flower market is
0: something that you've really cultivated over the last twenty years. What's been involved in building the market for the flowers? Is it is it different than what you might do to build the market for your organic vegetables?
1: It's it's different in that uh, people have to be acculturated to the use of flowers in their home. Those are the people who provide the bulk of our clientele in Fayetteville. So. If you go back if you turn the dial back to the late 80s uh when we were first getting started at the market the options for people that wanted to buy flowers were fairly limited you have the florists who are bringing in uh, imported flowers and flowers from different areas of the of the US and selling them fairly expensively for funerals and weddings, et cetera. Then you have the grocery store flowers even back in the late eighties that are primarily also South and Central American grown, brought in and made into bouquets somewhere and shipped out in unmasked lots of dye carnations and uh, daisies and nasty looking things like this. And so the since the late eighties this whole arena has grown up that we call specialty cut flowers which generally are flowers that are grown locally and cannot be shipped very well something like snapdragons have tremendous customer appeal and yet they don't ship very well so zinnias are another thing cosmos is something else these are flowers that can be grown um in most of the areas of the u.s and then um and but they can only be sold pretty much locally, and so first thing is creating attractive display and having bouquets that are not priced above what the average family can get. So we we noticed our I think we probably started selling bouquets at two fifty a a bunch back in the late eighties, and when we. F- uh, you know, a couple years later, when we decided to start spreading the prices out, because we noticed that the customers have, um, besides having different incomes, they have different uses for which they're going to put the flowers. Someone's got a, a grandmother who's turning 80, and they want to spend... They want to spend $25 or $30 or $40 because this is something that's coming from their heart. It doesn't have a lot to do with the item that they're buying. They're never going to pay $30 for a watermelon, no matter whose birthday it is. But they will, pay 30, <laughs> <laughs> they will pay $30 for a bouquet for grandma or somebody's trying to impress their girlfriend or et cetera. So flowers have this type of uh, romantic appeal. Um and so price structuring is interesting because you need to catch the high- end people and the low-end people. We've always wanted to have bouquets that were affordable for everyday use, like uh, uh, I think our low-end bouquet now is six dollars for, and we have a lot of young people who are in college or even younger who will go for those bouquets and older people who just they don't want to spend you know their flowers are considered somewhat superfluous but they can't help themselves but want to go for that color and have some of that in their home the bulk of our bouquets you know are, are that sell are probably the ten dollar size and then we have fifteen dollar size and up depending on people. some people will hand you a 50 and they just want you to make some outrageous bouquet for whatever special event they're having And so, every time a bouquet sells to a customer, this is a potential person that is going to get in the habit of buying flowers for the home. Because if you've ever seen what it's like to have a dinner party and have flowers on the table or not have flowers on the table, it adds a really special grace to the environment. And it's, uh, it's tangible and it's uh, kind of a wonderful thing. So it's, ma- it's a matter of people getting in the habit of doing that. And over the years, we've cultivated a lot of people who have gotten in the habit of doing that.
0: When you're doing the custom bouquets at market, do you guys already have, do you have pre-made bouquets and custom bouquets happening at the same time?
1: We do. Um, for a long time, we would only make bouquets at market, and this was simply a transportation issue. We would set up, uh, we just barely had time to get everything harvested and had room to get it packed in, a, in the cargo van that we were using for many years for market. And so all the flowers are po- po- you know packed in the truck. Uh, gladiolas in buckets and zinnias in buckets and often segregated by color but not made into anything and then as soon as we got to market we start making bouquets and setting them out uh, for display and um, this these days we never have time to make uh, nor do we have the room to put as many bouquets in the vehicles going to market as are going to sell at the market it takes a lot more room to put finished bouquets in a truck than it does to put the bulk flowers. So that's why we have to have a lot of personnel at market. But it also creates a show for the public. They love to sit around and watch people making bouquets. Uh, this summer in particular, we created a much, much larger flower stand next to our main tents where we have all the flowers displayed in tiers of uh, uh, basically the different kinds of flowers that are in bulk that we're taking from the use for making bouquets. So we've got a couple of salespeople up front. One person is just selling vegetables off the vegetable display, and one or two people are selling bouquets from our display stands and we've been trying to direct people toward those stands, which then the people in the back are keeping filled up all during market. And this is actually much more efficient than what we did for many years, where we would just take orders and make bouquets. Um, it's uh, it's much more time efficient for us to fill up a display and have people learn, train people to, to pick from a display.
0: You said that people can make bouquets, and you said I think the number you put out was like, but you know, between six and $20, although you, you're obviously selling a lot of bouquets that are, that are above that $20 price point. Is that just based on the actual flowers that they put in? I mean, if I say, gee, I want two irises and three zinnias and, uh, and a snapdragon, and you just add up what the individual prices were, and that becomes the price of the bouquet.
1: Well, I I should, they, they can, they can choose what they want in the bouquet, but we don't actually have them handling the flowers just to clear that up. Um, Yes, we do have a price per stem that we want to get, especially for the more expensive flowers. Like we grow maybe 10,000 or more lilies every summer, Oriental and Asiatic lilies, and we pay quite a bit for those uh to to grow them out. So we may have a dollar a stem in those lilies before they ever go to market. And we ask three dollars a stem and and three for ten dollars on oriental lilies. So if those go in a bouquet, yes, those are good and they're not sold just by the stem. We sell those by we can sell anything by the stem, but if they go in a bouquet, all all of our, our people know what the value of that is. Now um, if somebody asks for zinnias, these days we're selling them for fifty cents a piece, gladiolas are or a dollar, or tuberoses or a dollar fifty, sunflowers or a dollar fifty. These type of prices. However, the different types of flowers have different inherent costs, and something like a zinnia or a rudbeckia or an azuratum is uh, easy and cheap to produce in the field. And so, if we have a lot one week and we know that we're probably not going to sell them all the bouquets are just going to get bigger or we don't try to to count stems on everything is what i'm trying to say
0: how do you price the bouquets that customers are are asking you guys to assemble do you kind of look at it and go that's a 20 dollar bouquet or are you actually sitting there and counting zinnias and counting lilies and going okay if i add up you know Three zinnias at fifty cents, and and three lilies for ten dollars. You know that's going to come out to eleven dollars and fifty cents. So that's what this is worth.
1: Actually, we don't do it that way. Um, first of all, uh, probably ninety percent of what we're selling are bouquets at our bouquet stand, which they're picking up that are in categories of six, ten, and fifteen dollars. So um, most most of the bouquets are being sold that way. And if and when we ask them what and if they don't want one of those and if they'd like us to make something for them, um, and they say, uh, I'll say, well, what size would you like and what color range would you like? So they're going to pick a $10 bouquet or a $15 bouquet or a $20 bouquet, and we're going to make that size. Now, I'm going to have a general idea of what I want to get for the stems, uh, but there's a lot of wiggle room there.
0: How do you come up with the prices for the different flowers? what's your what's your pricing strategy?
1: part of it is what the market can bear, but part of it is the cost that we have in the flowers so some of the flowers are just much more expensive to produce, so lilies would be on the very high end um, something like tuberose if you're having to buy them in a tuberose bulb might cost you fifty cents, and the flower would sell for a dollar fifty. Uh, uh we get pretty good um uh, production on those so it's not as if we have a lot of shrink um and and some of like the tuberose now tulips are another question uh they're fairly expensive to plant we spend three or four thousand dollars on planting tulips in the fall and depending on the year we may or may not have a good tulip year so there's quite a bit of uh can can be a lot of loss or there can be just awesome profit in tulips if you know how to handle them and store them properly um so the price that w- the, the, what we have in them is going to determine what our sale sales price is and as far as determining um, exact price cost of production on any of the seed grown items we don't go to that much trouble as far as trying to figure out exactly how many hours we spend out there cutting them, uh we have a very good idea generally of what's cheap to produce and what's not so I think that's about it um, the more the more we're around the flowers and how much uh a lot of the a lot of the cost of flowers of course is the labor to harvest them, and that's why we have to have a fairly good size crew for even four acres uh, it takes a lot of time to cut hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of blooms and it takes some training and also a lot of actually a lot of uh, hours cutting to get good at it um, we find that the, we don't have as much competition of course with the cut flowers partly because we've been in it for so long there is there are more flowers on the market than ever before this summer because the growers get turned on to the fact that there is a profit to be made and they don't. a lot of the flowers don't have cucumber beetles or squash bugs on them, which is a plus. Um, but as my friend who is in pastured beef told me when I asked about fire blight on these pears, he said, I don't know, except cattle don't get it. <laughs> so that's right. <laughs> fire blight, no fire blight on cattle. Yeah. So, um, yes, competition is coming for for the cut flowers, but we find that our best bet is to just have really outrageous displays of high quality blooms that have been cut on time, refrigerated on time, uh, taken to market, not having any um, nastiness, so that people have the longest shelf life possible. Uh, We often get people coming to market saying that they bought a bouquet at one of the other folks on the market and that didn't last but a couple of days well this is this is preventable but it uh requires some training so people that are out there that are trying to grow cut flowers on the cheap and then not handle them well and sell them for not very much at farmers markets really aren't doing themselves a favor because people will stop buying them
0: right because one of the things with cut flowers is it's it is something i mean unlike you know say a head of radicchio or a bag of salad mix you don't just use it once, right? You you look at it over a period of days or, or a week or even longer. So that shelf right. life is almost more important with the flowers even than, than it is with the vegetables. And it's really important with the vegetables.
1: Yeah, and at least the vegetables are refrigerated for the most part once you get them home, a lot of them. So the flowers are just – they're – in the living room all the time, and if they go down fast, somebody's not going to be happy with the amount of money that they spend on them. But we have really good luck with our flowers, mainly because they go straight from the field. Uh, they go straight into buckets with floral preservative. Uh, the ones that like that. Some of them don't. And they go up into the cooler if they like being chilled down. And uh, the buckets are all marked with uh, masking tape or duct tape with the date they were harvested, so we can do a proper rotation in the cooler. We have an eight by twelve cooler that we use um, for all of our production, and um, so we're we're real careful about making sure our flowers look really good. There's always going to be some loss, and I think there's probably going to be more loss. We 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 expect some loss with the flowers more so than we would be happy with with our vegetables. We're very careful about our vegetable planning, not overproduce because we don't really want vegetable loss. The flowers, there's going to be some loss, especially on the species that are uh, cheap to produce, and I don't worry about it too much. We we want to have an adequate amount at the market, and it's just inevitable that the markets are going to do whatever they do. Um, it's going to be hot one day, and people aren't going to come out. Or, but we, we as much as possible, we uh, we try to take an adequate and over you know something over that for our uh, the cut flowers are, are more of a toss up as about how to take how much to take to market than the vegetables the. You know, on our record keeping on our vegetable sales, we have a clear record of how many bunches were taken and how many were sold. And so if we go back to last Saturday's uh, market page and see how many bunches of kale sold and we know it was a busy day, we're not likely to take a lot more than that the following Saturday, having seen that uh, that's about how many are going to sell on a given busy day. The flowers are a little bit trickier, and some of them just have to go to market. If they don't go to market, they're not going to be good the next time. And so um, we do have a a friend who comes by and picks up extra buckets of flowers to take them to the senior citizen center. We used for years, we sent them off to uh, the local community hospital and they love that stuff there. So we do something, we don't just bring them all home and compost and we do give them to uh, some places that appreciate them.
0: And I think with a lot of the flowers, my, my memory, and it's been a long time since since we did commercial flowers. We we had several years at Rock Spring Farm where we were we were pumping out a large number of OKs every week for farmers market and for wholesale. Was that you also like like with fresh herbs, like with zucchini? If you want to be a lot of them, if you want them to keep producing, you've got to keep picking them.
1: That's right. So for our weekly markets, uh, for instance, on our longs, zin- we have 250-foot-long, uh, four-foot-wide beds. There's any out there. And we'll only pick a certain number of buckets to go to Tuesday or Thursday markets. But our Friday harvest or Saturday, everything that's ready has to be cut, if at all possible, because we just want to keep them cleaned up. Things, some things have to be cut every day. And so as much as um, <laughs> I'm not interested in going to work on Sunday morning early after getting home from all day long, at Saturday morning, it is inevitable that there are some things that have to be cut in the middle of the summer. Otherwise you're going to miss the stage because they may have to sit in the cooler for a week where they will continue to develop somewhat. And we don't want them looking nasty by next week's market. So they,
0: and you said that you're using a floral preservative. What, what product are you using with that? And, and I guess that would lead me to ask, cause I think your vegetables are certified organic. Are your flowers also certified organic?
1: Well they are I think they are not um strictly certified organic the, the 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 farm is certified organic but our certifiers are only looking at our food crops um uh, perhaps that's because the Oklahoma Department of Agriculture Food Safety Division is charged with the cert- organic certification pro- uh, program and so this has been um, actually a boom for us because it would be very difficult for us to provide um, to find organically grown gladiolas in the twenty thousand uh, not count numbers that we need, or uh, ten thousand lily bulbs organically grown. We're, we don't even think those things are available organically. So our certifiers have not basically they are not, um, dealing with our flowers. And so we, we let them not deal with it. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> How, h- however, they have records of everything we plant. They have all of our seed orders. They have all of our field maps. They know exactly what's going on. And so f- I know in some areas of the country that the certifiers, other certifiers have been very hard on the flower growers, about, uh, especially plant propagation material. Um, and I, I feel sorry for those growers. Um, whereas of course our vegetables are all, you know, either organic seeds or we can't find it organically. And, uh, we have to prove that we can't find it organically all and all the rest. You said that
0: you started the farm in 1984. I mean, I'm thinking back to now. I was a freshman in high school in 1984. So, I mean, I, I can't say that I was, I wasn't super aware of like local and organic and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I thought I was pretty hip cause I had a banana at lunch and it was fresh food. Nobody else had fresh food. You know, that, that made me the resident hippie. So the, um, I guess I'm kind of curious, like in 1984, I mean, what were you thinking? I'm going to start an organic vegetable farm in Northern Arkansas.
1: I mean, are you crazy? Well, Definitely. But uh, there was a lot of history before that. Um, I was a biology student at the University of Illinois back in the early and mid-70s. And uh, uh spent my junior year in, um, in Europe. And at some point, I got pretty bored with my studies in uh, Paris, uh, unbelievably. It just wasn't suiting me. Cr- and I went to work on a German dairy farm. In the Alps, and I was so happy there. Just I actually was thinking about coming back and going to vet school, and um, I I just experienced for the first time this sort of unbelievable peace of mind that came from the type of lifestyle that they had, which was independent farmers in nature, just doing their thing. And it was uh, it was it was wonderful. It actually was quite healing for me psychologically. And I came back and finished up my degree and. I went to work got a job at a community organic garden project that was um, out just not far from the university that were people were rented plots and um I got an assistant manager job there. I didn't know anything about gardening, but I started learning how to garden. We did a demonstration garden, put on workshops once a month on composting and put out a monthly newsletter. And At some point, I had been involved in a appropriate technology li- library that was going together at the university, and I came across John Jevons' How to Grow More Vegetables book, which came out in the early 70s, I believe. And in the preface, he mentioned this uh, this uh, eccentric genius, Alan Chadwick, who had been a student of Rudolf Steiner's and uh, was a, quote, mystic gardener. And I was just fascinated with the whole uh, concept. And so I made an exploratory trip out to California to try to meet Alan and see what it would be like to study with him. And, um, and so I'm that I wanted to study with him, put my name on the list and a couple months later got a letter inviting him out there to Covalo which was in Northern California to where his project was at the time and uh, anyway that's That's a story. I wasn't there for a long time because Alan was uh, already sick with cancer and he ended up moving to Virginia to start the New Market Garden in Virginia. Several of the people that we were working with uh, moved with him to Virginia and a a contingent of us went down to the University of Santa Cruz where he had started his original project in 1967. And so I became an intern there for a year learning the various techniques that he had brought uh, there. And... um, that was a big eye-opener, um, just the being exposed to the gardens that Chadwick had designed and implemented at uh, UCSC and at Saratoga Community Gardens, at Zen Center, and at Covalo. Um I had never considered to, well I was certainly interested in gardening, but I had never seen the cornucopia— of color and scent and uh, variety and fruit trees and herbs. And it was just a complete uh, feast for me. And I felt at home and I just wanted to be there. And so that's how I got hooked into the type of thing that we're doing now. It took a lot of years for it to get worked out in terms uh technically at the time that Chadwick was at the university. In fact, when I was there, almost everything was done by hand. Uh, the beds were double dug. Of course, they had this nice uh, sandy soil, nothing like our Ozark right. <laughs> rocky soils. <laughs> First time I tried doing any digging here, it took like three days to dig a 100 foot bed. So now we use a spader that can do it in five minutes. But that hell had to come over the years of trial and error. Um, and about at the same time, when I was at my uh, as, as an intern at UCSC Farming Garden, Masanobu Fukuoka came to the States for the first time and stopped in California, and I had a chance to meet him, and he had a huge impact on me. Um, he's the author of One Star Revolution and the farm project. He ended up moving in with a group of Japanese hippies up in the mountains in Northern California and, uh, and moved into a teepee and uh, proceeded to try natural farming, uh, so-called natural farming, throwing out big bags of seeds all over the landscape saying what would come up and uh, so I did a lot of time studying his philosophy of uh, let nature do it and um, and so it's been you know my personal journey has certainly been kind of finding my way between these two polarities of uh, this kind of exuberant eccentric English horticulturalists and this kind of Zen uh, uh, nature person that Fukuoka was eventually made it to in Japan back in about 1990 and um, and we've gone through a no-till phase here but um, um, well my, maybe more about that later but that's how I got started and that's how the original it's you know it's I felt lucky as a young person in my late twenties to encounter these binaries that had such huge impact on all of us. Um, and certainly set the, uh, groundwork for everything that was sort of to play out after we found our property.
0: How did you get from doing natural farming in Northern California to growing vegetables in Northern Arkansas? I mean, I, and you, this may be me being provincial. You know, I grew up in Seattle and I really didn't <laughs> understand that there was anything east of I-5 for most of my most of my youth. And
1: so, I mean, you know, I don't know. Arkansas, like... I had roots here. Not in Arkansas. I actually uh, spent 12 years on the Gulf Coast, Mississippi, um, where my father and mother were from. And uh, then we moved to Illinois and I went to the University of Illinois. You know, when I was in high school, when I went out to the West Coast, I was to study with Chadwick, and I stayed out there for a few years. And so my attempt to come back east had to do with two things. One, it never rains out there in the summertime, which is a big drag. And the place I was living with all those Japanese folks... um, up in the mountains, the annual rainfall was 10 inches a year. So I put in a big garden there and proceeded to wash it all dry up as our spring water got down to about 10 gallons a day. And that wasn't any fun. And I heard about a project in Natchez, Mississippi. A guy had inherited a big, huge antebellum plantation that, uh, and he was about my age and he was turning it into an organic farming community. So I decided to go down there and check it out. And because uh, my folks were in Georgia, <laughs> They had moved to Georgia and uh, I was interested as they got older and maybe being a little bit closer to them. But uh, my plans at that point still hadn't gelled about exactly where all this was going to lead, whether it was going to lead to trying to buy property. But I think that experience in Mississippi at that community definitely pushed me over the edge as far as like, okay, (laughs) no more three hour long community meetings. I'm going to go buy some property and (laughs) do do it my way. I met Mike, and he was living in Eureka Springs, he was from the Ozarks, from Springfield, Missouri, and I met him through a mutual friend, and we took off tree planting together one winter, and through the course of those thousands and thousands of trees that we planted in Florida uh, for the paper companies, um, which gave us a little bit of cash in our pockets, and also we had friends who had gone out tree planting for a season or two and then come back with, you know, $10,000 plus in cash and had bought property in the Ozarks. And boy, that sounded like a good thing. And when I came up to the Ozarks for the first time, I definitely fell in love with the hills here and it was a lot moister and cooler up here and it seemed like a great blend of uh the kind of the mountainous topography of california that i really liked plus summer rainfall patterns and the land was very cheap in the late in the mid 80s there property values had had really declined right then so we just happened to hit this property at just the right time we found this place just a couple months after we got back from our first um street planning gig in uh, florida that was 1984
0: in 1984 when you guys uh start the farm did you just did you jump right in and have four acres right away how long did it take you guys to kind of get up to really utilizing that land and and actually making a living on it
1: it probably took about 10 years um We we tree planted in the wintertime for about four years just to make the annual land payments, and um, we bought a 40-acre piece here, and the price is really good. So it was very doable in terms of a monthly, but we had it on a 10-year contract. And so first thing... want to do is just get those land payments out of the way for the year we could be gone we had we had friends come and stay here during the winter time and just kind of caretake the place and then which was a pretty big deal (laughs) since you know often they'd get snowed in and couldn't get out and we didn't have running water for 10 years um we lived in a little house that was assessed at about two thousand dollars when we first moved into it um now we live in a much bigger house next door but uh, when we came home the first season also, but we had inherited this two acres of 2,000 plants of these seven-year-old blueberries that were just coming into maturity the first summer we were here. So the second week we were here after signing the papers, we were out grading blueberries, selling them to the Arkansas Blueberry Growers Association and joining the farmer's market so we could sell the blueberries because that's all we had. So, you know, that first summer when we got home with some cash uh, in addition to our land payments, we started buying irrigation tubing and putting irrigation on the blueberries and getting our neighbor to bring their tractor over and mow the blueberries out. We bought a uh, walk behind Gravely Tiller and opened up about the first half acre and started planting potatoes and tomatoes and everything, at least for home use. Um, But since we were doing the farmer's market right away with the blueberries and had joined, um, we basically started doing the farmers market from the get-go we just it took uh it took a few years to to get to even two acre size now this is not what I'd call uh prime agricultural land <laughs> Tom Leonard uh, is a friend of ours who uh, started the grain exchange uh, out of Lawrence Kansas years ago and he came and visited us and I was a little bit taken aback when in an article he said that we lived at a in a rocky clearing in the woods but you know coming from <laughs> we're coming from kansas coming from, yeah <laughs> yeah no he's got some deep soil So we have extremely rocky flinty soil and it's all sloping and there's nothing level um so we basically had to be kind of japanese about it and start fitting all these contoured beds into um into the landscape, which turned out really, it's beautiful. It's, you know, it's a very beautiful location. And it actually, for me personally, it turned out to be uh, something that I'm very proud of that we were able to create um, this little paradise on here. it's it's fairly unique, but it's very different from just going into a field and being able to open up two acres and planting, planting crops. Uh, it just wasn't like that. It also had to do with my own or our own lack of uh, larger production experience. The experience at UCSC Farm and Garden Project, um, at the time, that project basically was about uh, horticultural production but not so much about sales. Although there were some sales happening, most of the uh, um, the information about selling and CS- CSAs had yet to be born at that time. They were barely born by 1989, 88, 89, uh, when we were here. But back in the mid-70s, late 70s, when I was at UCSC, there wasn't even such thing as a CSA here in the States. So um, all of that, all of those things had to be worked out later in terms of how are you going to support yourself doing this kind of type of work or what kind of tools are you going to do to try to create the same uh, production level and ambience that you might have had in a hand-dug garden. Even though the Chadwick Gardens at Covalo were seven acres of uh, hand-dug beds, there was about 40 people there working. So we didn't have those slaves to come and do that. Although we have had um, we have had interns here almost every summer since we've been here. So, in brief, it uh, was I was and then we did we spent uh, almost uh, twenty years without a tractor. So you're not talking to somebody who learns really fast. <laughs> <laughs> wow! There are a lot more resources now. You know, of course. Um, in, uh, in every direction than there were back in the late 70s and early 80s. All right.
0: So with that, I think we're going to stop, take a break. And when we come back, I want I want to ask you some more about the tractors and what your production system has evolved into over the years. Okay. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes for certified organic transplant production. And while it's hard to start thinking now about next year's potting soil in the middle of the current season, you don't want to miss participating in Vermont Compost Company's fall pre-buy program. When you order Vermont Compost Potting Soil for next year's growing season, you can save significantly on the finest potting soil that I personally have ever used. There are many great options for significant savings. Vermont Compost Company organizes shared truckload weeks when they organize and group orders by state or region. When you place your order to ship on one of these shared truckloads, they offer discounts on the purchase of your potting soil. Plus, they consolidate the orders so growers also save on shipping fees. Now, if you want to get the best possible deal on Vermont Compost Potting Soil, order a full truckload. If you don't need a full truckload yourself, get together with your farming friends and neighbors and order a full truckload together. This option offers the best possible price per sling bag or pallet and the best possible shipping rate. It's also the best option for growers who are a great distance away from Vermont. Growers who pre-buy full truckloads often end up paying a price for their sling bags that is lower than what growers pay for a sling bag picked up in Vermont. The fall pre-buy program runs to September 21st to December 21st. For more information, visit the website vermontcompost.com. Bandwidth for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by BCS America. A BCS two-wheel tractor is the only power equipment a market gardener will need with PTO-driven attachments like the rototiller, flail mower, power harrow, rotary plow, snow thrower, log splitter, and more. You name it and you can probably run it with a versatile BCS two-wheel tractor. The first time I used a rototiller way back in 1991, it was mounted to a BCS two-wheel tractor and it spoiled me for life. When you get behind a BCS, you can tell that it's built to the same commercial standards as four-wheeled farm tractors. I've used other tillers and mowers and I spent most of the time when I was using them thinking of how much easier it would be with a BCS. On my own farm, we went through a number of so-called solutions before we finally got smart and bought one for ourselves. Even though we owned a four-wheel tractor to manage our 20 acres of vegetables, the BCS tackled jobs that we couldn't do with the larger machine, from mowing steep slopes and around trees to working on our high tunnels. Check out bcsamerica.com to see the full lineup of tractors and attachments. All right, and we're back with Mark Kane of Dripping Springs Garden in Northern Arkansas. So, Mark, on your four acres of vegetables and flowers, can you you just mentioned like it took you twenty years to buy a tractor? Um, so now you've got a tractor. What size tractor do you have?
1: We've got a twenty-six horse uh, Kubota. Okay, and is that just just and the one
0: tractor on the farm?
1: That's right. It's with a with a load. Mm-hmm. We actually uh, bought it to fit through our 30-year-old blueberries to put sawdust on them. Uh, and that's why we had the front loader on it. But uh, it's, it's actually been a really good size for what we're doing, especially coupled with the spader and the tiller and everything else.
0: Okay. And you mentioned that you're on some fairly steep slopes and you're working through some contoured beds. Tell us a little bit about your... Your tillage practices and and how you're going about prepping the beds so that you don't end up with a lot of erosion when you get these inevitable gully washers that seem so much more common in the last ten years than they did in the in the thirty before that.
1: Yeah, so um, if you can imagine this uh, hillside with about a twenty twenty percent slope. And the top of it, the top half of it, is what the where the blueberries were, and they actually ran up and down on the hill. The original blueberry planting, um, maybe maybe it's only a fifteen percent slope there, but I think they the original blueberry planters put those in for access to the main water lines. So anyway, we have two different uh, organizations. One are the all the beds that actually run up and down the hill where the former blueberry field was, and. Then the lower part, which is a little bit steeper, which are all on contour, and we have the, um, when we first set it up, we uh, actually had the soil conservation folks come out here and shoot some contours for us, and we eyeballed where we wanted to put the main paths between sections because they, those were areas that happened to be a little bit lower, so on the hill slope, we have about five or six different garden sections um, as you move across the hill that um, basically what happens because they're on contour or almost on contour once they get saturated with rain the the uh, excess flows into the paths, and the paths are are figured so that they drain into sodded walkways so in the lowest part of the field we had to play with the contour so that we had about a one foot drop and a hundred feet in the pathway so that uh, water would shed out of the section so we don't have any beds that ever get cut from water build up all the water sheds out but it is basically in a let's say we have a half inch rain in the summertime um all of that water pretty much is harvested uh because we are on contour like that we don't have any runoff um we actually set that up uh, it was a takeoff on the permaculture designs of the yeomans um uh, what is that called a, the, the australian man who set up the the uh, key line system the key line so system our, yeah Right. so that our our bed our Contour bed area, which is about an acre and a half, to two acres, was set up uh, based on the key line system, whereas the other area, we, we never expected to take the blueberries out until we realized that we could brush hog them down instead of tearing them out and then start putting in beds where the grass paths were between the blueberries and so that's by that time we had purchased the spader and we were able to go into sod fairly easily and create new growing beds where the grass paths used to be between the blueberries so basically up there about 10 years ago we started brush hogging down blueberries to the ground and just keeping them mowed down it'll just took a couple of mowings keep them mowed to the ground and um and we put in beds between them. So we, we purchased a 51-inch Shelly Spader um, that works very well with our small Kubota tractor on, on low gear. And that's uh, our primary tillage. And then we have a, a land pride, um tiller, uh, three-point tiller that we can use Um at first, we thought we were only going to need the spader and the and a walk behind tiller and as it turned out, the spader didn't do a very good at least at least the reciprocating spader that we bought didn't do a very good job of chopping up cover crop sod and we needed to come back with something that was going to do a job of like tearing up the chunks that were turned in um but uh, because of our rocky soils um I feel like this chelly spader enabled us has has enabled us to do a tremendous amount of work um Especially moving into two acres of of sod in the blueberry f- field. So typically, when uh, and then at some point down the road after the tractor and spader purchase, we saw that our raised beds down here in the lower part of the garden, uh, since we didn't have any way to hip them up, um, were starting to lose their loft and you know gradually eroding, so that there wasn't as much uh, height to them. And our beds permanent. Our beds don't move around. They have permanent paths. They're basically four foot wide. We started out years ago with five foot wide beds, and because that's what people were doing then, that turned out to be not good for our tractor um, implements. So we went to four foot wide beds, and um, we we tried a um, what do those call a Buckeye Junior better from that the Buckeye yep. tractor company in, in Indiana, I believe it is. And But that meant that we had to tear everything up and re-bed from totally tilled up ground, which is not what we wanted to do, actually. We did go through that process, and we didn't like it because our soil is so rocky that every time we would till and make beds— there was this combing combing off of rocks process to put them in the paths, to just get them off the beds and into the paths where they weren't going to be in the way of the crops. And if you have to tear up everything each time you're going to make beds, that means the rocks are all going all back all over the place. So what has worked better for us, and we're real happy with our system right now, we um, we eventually bought uh, a BCS with a rotary hoe and a tiller uh, and a flail mower to complement the work of the of the tractor. And so now what I do is I'll if let's say I'm getting a bed ready to plant, I'll spade the spade the bed and then take one pass with the BCS rotary hoe around the bed to hip it up. And then we'll fertilize the bed with the amendments and then I'll put the three-point tiller on the tractor. And at that point, the bed actually fits underneath our tractor, and um, the tires are just on the outer edges of where the bed's going to be. And the Land Pride tiller, if I press it down flush, will act as a bed pan and bed shaping pan, and I get we get a perfect, perfectly level, beautiful raised bed from one pass with a tiller, and it works really well now. On the, that's for all the beds that are raised that are down here in our lower part of the garden where we could have drainage issues, uh, where we used to have drainage issues if we didn't have raised beds. On the upper part, where in the former blueberry field, um, those beds are simply level because there's there's grass paths in between all the beds up there, which are the grass paths where, where the grass paths are now or where the blueberries used to be. And so we have about 10 foot of grass strip in between the production beds, four foot wide production beds up there. And so those are basically just worked with the, uh, the spader and and because the three point tiller, uh, because we have uh, untilled ground on both sides of that spaded four foot wide area, the, the three, the three point tiller, um, the land pride doesn't really drop down quite properly. The housing can catch on the edges of the bed, and so I like to fertilize the beds after spading. I like to fertilize the beds, and then I just run over it with a BCS tiller to work the amendments in, and I don't have to get the tractor back on there. And that's worked out really well, too. So we have this complementary relationship between this this tractor and this walk-behind tractor, and I'm pretty happy with it.
0: Yeah, and it seems really important with kind of the... Well, squeezing yourself into this landscape here, you know, again, it not being just taking, taking two acres out of a cornfield or four acres out of a cornfield, but really kind of fitting into the the variable landscape that you've
1: got. That's right. And that's, that's the reason we don't own a plastic layer, because... Um, Half of the field has untilled ground on either side of the tilled beds, and so there's nowhere to drag soil with the shovels uh, onto the plastic. And down in the lower areas, you know, some of the beds might be as short as 55 feet, whereas in the upper areas we have 270 foot long beds. Uh, the the bed lengths are variable because of the terracing because of the contour and the shape of the hill. So we've actually found it very effective to um, do landscape fabric laying and plastic laying by hand with our crew without having to fiddle with a machine.
0: What else are you doing for weed control besides the landscape fabric and the plastic?
1: Well, we're using that wherever possible. Also, we're using wheat straw that we actually buy in from Kansas. So it has to make a little bit of a trip down here. It's fairly expensive. Uh, we have to pay about $6 a bale delivered, and we buy in about 600 bales a year. So in the lower part of the garden where the beds are terraced, the paths, the uh, two foot wide paths, are all mulched with straw. And then the beds, the weed control in the beds is with either fabric or black plastic, black or white plastic, or in the case of something like a gladiol or a a crop or garlic where we're planting a bulb in a furrow and it has enough push to get through a mulch. In certain instances, we'll use that organic mulch over the crop and let it push itself through there for weed control. We used to do that everywhere, but as we got uh, to be bigger than two acres, we found that we were getting just tremendously behind our weedies that things would come up in weeds that were mulch with straw. Plus the expense got to be greater and greater over the years. So, um, so we minimize the amount of hand cultivation that we do because we still have to go back and weed the holes around the crops and all of the plastic and the fabrics and stuff. And the path bulb, The path weeds have to be taken care of. But for the crops that absolutely have to be planted on uh, bare soil, turnips, carrots, daikon, etc., we we use hand weed control. But we prefer to uh, use some sort of uh, mulch film whenever possible just because our soil is also very porous. And we can't retain water very well. In addition to the weed problem.
0: So, Mark, right, you mentioned earlier you have between four and five interns most years on the farm. You know they're they're working a similar schedule to what you're what you're working. You tell us a little bit about how your internship program works.
1: Well, we have a listing on the Astra website um, with the national. Um, Center for Property Technology. And we've had that listing for a long time. So a lot of times kids will find us through that. Often these are college age folks that are looking for some farm experience. Um, and, uh, At best, they start contacting us in the fall prior to the production year that they're interested in coming here. We uh, have several documents we developed over the years to send back to them to try to give them as clear an idea of what working here is like and what the pay is going to be and what our schedule will be like and what we're like what the area is like but of course nothing can really quite convey the amount of work that's going to be required of everyone so we also try to have them come and visit and possibly work with us for a few days to see if the chemistry is right Uh, that's a real important part of having the right kind of people around um and I think we've gotten better at sussing out uh, who's going to work and who's not, um, what kind of experience we would like to have had. It's nice if we don't have to break them in for their first farm summer. If they can have had some farm experience somewhere else and we have someone to talk to about what they were like to work with, and we are very careful about checking references these days just to see how much we can find out about someone in addition to what we might see when they are on the phone or, or coming here to visit. Um, we share a couple meals a day here. We are actually on a cooking schedule, so the interns help cook breakfast and lunch, and then they go to the house next door for supper and hanging out, and then we have the house free for the evening for flute practice or whatever, uh, planning for the next day. Um, so we don't have to spend all of our time together. I think in the, for the future, there's another building under uh uh in planning that will actually take most of the food situation out of our house and uh and have it more centralized just as an intern house. But there's a lot to be said for for eating together uh once a day at least, um, where we can able to it's part of the learning process to what's available in the garden and what does that mean on a table and in the kitchen. And that plays into how we deal with our CSA and how we try to educate folks about uh, how we can eat using the things that grow here in season. So we, meals are a really big part of, of what happens here. Um, and you know just the management of young people who are now the age of if we had had children uh what you know we're the age of their parents or possibly 10 years older and uh how that relationship plays out um you know over the years we have developed systems for how does the crew know what's going to be happening that week? Most recently, I've been sending out work schedule uh, agendas for the week to their cell phones since they love looking at their cell phones <laughs> as much as possible. They can look at the cell phone and see what's on the agenda for that week, which I think is very helpful. But, yeah, just having various systems in place where we can get what we need and try to get people up to speed as much as possible. We've had quite a few foreign students work here that came through the Multinational Exchange for Sustainable Agriculture out of Oakland Mesa. We've had about 10 different foreign students working here. And that has often worked out very well and has added a a nice international flavor to the work crew and where we were able to talk about uh, what what we're doing. Does what we're doing here on this little farm have any relevance to your little farm in northern Thailand? And that's always a real interesting discussion. but yes, they're integral, and uh, we're quite dependent on. It. And because of our situation here, where we live in a pretty lovely natural setting. And we're far enough away from most of the surrounding towns that it's not an easy sell for us to hire in employment from a local area that has to drive in and out. It's almost an hour drive to get here from almost anywhere. And so having people on site is real important, which means we can do things like have this schedule where we start early in the morning, have this long midday break, and then work in the cool of the day, uh, which is hard to do with hourly employees. that have to drive in and they want to drive home and be home at night. It also adds a whole layer of complexity to the social situation where you know we we are we and our interns are form our social group for the summer for the most part, and so that has its own uh, ups and downs. So, um, learning where to set boundaries for our house and what can be done and what can't be done and how people have to the cleaning they have to do. Well, this is you know. This was a system I was trained in at at UCSC Farm and Garden Project, and so it's a a very successful apprenticeship model, but it has to be managed in a certain way, and certainly not for everybody. Right. And
0: certainly something that, like you said, does require management. It's not something that's just going to take care of itself.
1: No, if there are problems, social problems happening and friction happening on the crew and just and it's happening at night and not in your home, you can't just ignore it. Often you have to kind of step in and see what can be done and so you know, it's an added layer of complexity. You
0: and I met at, at Southern Sog in Mobile, Alabama. I think it was about a year and a half ago. And and uh, and then when I when I went back and was was doing some research and getting ready for the interview, one of the things that really struck me was the, you know, your your farm's about more than just doing the production. And and whether you're reading one of your newsletters or or you know reading an interview that you've done with with one of the edible magazines, it's really clear that you're, you place a lot of value on the quality of life. And yet on four acres with a, with a small, intense market garden, that's got to be a hard balance to keep.
1: Yes, <laughs> it is, but I've had some good, um, good help with, uh, especially with, um, uh, yoga practice. Um, I think we, we pretty much beat ourselves up for about 10 years and, uh, I discovered I was, I was doing some yoga back then, just sort of a 20 minute a day practice. Um, but I got exposed to a form of yoga that did, did something for me that uh, was pretty awesome. And I just made a decision that I wanted that quality in my life, which was more, more relaxed, focused uh, style. Uh, instead of running around chasing my tail and always trying to take care of all the odds and ends. um, I realized that I could take an hour and a half out of the middle of the day or the the morning of the day or whatever and uh, actually spend that time way that made me so much more focused the rest of the day and more relaxed that I actually enjoyed my life. So that's been a part of what's been going on here for a really long time now. That was like 22 years ago. And um, so we actually have a A daily work schedule. Right now, for instance, this is our summer schedule. Um, Our interns um, meet us for breakfast over here at the main house at uh, seven o'clock in the morning, and we go to work at seven thirty. We work until one o'clock, more or less, and then then there's a yoga break, or it's a siesta. If you want to go have a siesta or go practice the guitar or whatever, I'm going to go to the yoga area and practice yoga for about an hour and a half until lunch. And so we eat lunch kind of late around three o'clock. And uh, then we go back to work at four and work until seven. And so that's been a schedule for summertime that's worked really well here. And any of the interns that are interested in the yoga practice, I will, will teach it to them. I've had a lot of yoga buddies over the years, and sometimes there aren't any, um, because I don't put any pressure on it, but for me personally, it's been a huge way to try to maintain balance in the face of a kind of endless work, Uh, because if you don't put some boundaries around uh, how much you're willing to work in the field, it can just eat it all up and so um, you need to change the oil in the machine including the psychology of the machine once a day in order to be a really happy person
0: i really like that idea of that that kind of focus siesta you know not just not just taking 3 hours and taking a nap in the middle of the day but actually using it as an opportunity to like you described change the oil or or recharge the batteries so that you can come back again in the evening and and be ready to get that more work done especially in a hotter climate like you guys have there, you know, further south in a place like
1: Arkansas. Because it's not a matter of just resting. Somehow, somehow you have to be able to set down the entire ball of wax, uh, meaning I see some of the kids that work for us, uh, you know, they'll think that they need to go rest and, and uh, they'll hang out and try to get a little bit of sleep. And then they wake up and they're not they're actually not very refreshed and when you spend some time with a very systematic stretching and working through of uh, you know so many different muscles in your body and then spend some quality time in the corpse pose you know even 5 seconds of complete rest can make a huge difference in somebody's day and and you're able to just lay it all down it doesn't mean you don't have to get up and go right back to it but you can go back to it in a way that you're not frantic um somehow i had to find a way to to uh, break that that mental chain of being always attached to what was weedy and what needed mowing and what needed planting and of course all that's important but how do you break the Incessant worry about it. You, if you can find a way to do that, however it is, it's real important.
0: Is is the yoga practice something that that Michael participates in as well?
1: Nope, he's not into it. But he could probably teach a class. He's been around me for so long, <laughs> I mean, he's doing it all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a matter of personal choice. He, he's into drawing, so he, he was an art student. He, he loves drawing different things on gourds and stuff and we've got some you know some of our interns like to go out to their yurt and you know practice a guitar or or do a video game you know it's just um, we put so much pressure on everyone (laughs) in terms of the work day that I don't feel comfortable trying to put too much pressure on the yoga even though I think it's an incredible way to uh, to relax and you know, I've had a lot of help uh, in terms of my own my own yoga practice. Just that uh, for anything that's, uh, let's say, a farmer wants to cultivate some other aspect of their life that's in there, and for me, it's been music and yoga. Um, and for it to have some serious repercussions within their life, you know, they they have to reach out and and have support within those fields often from outside the farm so i've been back and forth to india several times and you know i play with a little jazz trio in town and uh take flute lessons and i've taken piano lessons for years and so all those things uh they're not it's not just because i decided i'm going to take my time and and spend 30 minutes here doing this little bit of yoga i i i um I want to do, it's that I have a whole network of support there. And I think that's important.
0: Well, and I think especially things like like what you mentioned with the flute is is, you know, that creates a schedule where now you have an obligation that's off the farm with somebody else. And I think that's a really good way to encourage yourself to put the hoe down at the end of the day and go do something else because you've actually got an obligation in a different place.
1: Well, that definitely happens to me because when seven o'clock comes, it's like, I've got, I, I need to have my time organized so I can go up and hit the practice room because on Saturday we're going to be playing these pieces and uh, we might have a gig at an art gallery or something. And I I want to get better. I, I, don't, I don't want it to be, you know, just, I want to, uh, to get good at it. So, um I have a pretty scheduled, <laughs> pretty scheduled recreationals calendar. <laughs> but on Saturday afternoon after market, yeah, you know, we leave here at uh, 4.15 in the morning on Saturday to go to the farmer's market. And we do the farmer's market until about one thirty, and, and then go out to lunch together with the crew and then do some minor shopping. But then, you know, I go play with this little jazz group uh, for a couple hours. And it's just so much fun to do something so complex completely different and those folks they don't participate in this life at all instead of me driving back home and looking at all the things that need to be mowed it's a lot more fun to be doing something else <laughs> 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 i'm leaving for a week on saturday to go to a jazz camp. so i'm i'm taking a little holiday in the middle of summer which is outrageous but it's awesome
0: it's really great when when you get the farm to a place where you can actually take that time off. I think that, that speaks really highly of what you must have with the interns and with your partner to make all
1: of that work. Hopefully, I'm not just taking advantage of them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I had a high school biology teacher who told me that when she was in graduate school, her professor would invite her on all these fascinating trips out to collect blue-green algae. And she said, oh, no, I've got to be in the lab looking at the microscope. And he finally said, you know what? You are not organizing your time correctly if you can't get out of the laboratory. It's
0: a theme that comes up again and again uh, in the podcast with some very successful growers who who have worked hard to set boundaries around what they do. I mean, it's not often that they've done it. In their first years, but as the farm matures, they find that they they need to actually put up some fences and say, "Okay, this is you know the farm gets this part of my life, but then there's this other part of my life that the farm doesn't get, whether that's hours or days or 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 a week at at jazz camp."
1: Well, as you get older, and I'm sixty-two, um, you realize that. Um Yes, you can work hard all your whole life, and then one day you're going to be dead. And uh, it could be any time now, um, or you could be in a few years. But what will you have done if you're going to be laying on your deathbed and say, wow, that was a lot of gardening. And that's all there was. Um, it's a little bit sad if there's if there are aspects of your personality or, or things you really that were part of you that could have made your life uh, more whole were never explored because you couldn't make the time for them. So more and more when things come up that I would love to do, but then a farmer would always say, oh, no, I, I can't leave for that month, amount of time to really look at it and say, well, how can I organize this so this can happen? Because the, those type of things can be uh, just uh, seminal in somebody's uh, life.
0: All right, so Mark, with with that note, I think it's time for us to turn to our lightning round that we do here at the end of the show. What's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: The spader. The the
0: Chelly spader. Yeah, I love it. So tell me about the Chelly spader.
1: Well, it's 51 inches wide and weighs about 500 pounds, and it looks like it's a lifetime tool, and it's never broken anything, knock on wood, and uh, it can handle our rocks, and it's great for going into new soil, it's great for going into um it's, it's, it provides just about the right depth of cultivation. It can also, it doesn't stir up the soil too much, so you can actually do a deep cultivation that's a bit rough and then work in amendments into the surface. So you have nice drainage, plus use some aeration without blenderizing everything. And uh, it's been pretty much problem free. I've changed the spades on it a couple of times because they wear down over time with their rocks. But it is uh, an amazing tool and, um, you know, I'm in love with it. I think I told you that uh, I bought it from our neighbor down the road who uh, went no-till at the same time we bought his spader. And I think I told you that I think we got the better end of the deal. He tried to buy it back from us at <laughs> one time and I said, no way.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, and that was Patrice Gross, right? Oops,
1: yeah. <laughs> All right. And what's your favorite crop to grow? sort of a toss-up between lilies and lettuce. (laughs) Which are
0: pretty different crops.
1: Yeah, they are. I think because they have special qualities for me. I've been a vegetarian since my 20s. And so salad crops are really important to me. And I love salad crops this time of year. I Just everything raw that's in in the garden just goes in one big bowl in the evening with a big crust of bread and maybe a beer on the side and that is just heaven for me and so having lettuce around uh all the time with different kinds uh is just awesome it doesn't you know it's just uh I, and the people at market of course love lettuce so uh and then lilies because of their fragrance you uh, as a flower grower, you become addicted to certain fragrances that, um, you know, the sense of smell is so deep. It's, it's kind of deeper than the sense of sight. And so the smell of a tuberose or a lily wafting down the hill on a summer evening, about nine o'clock in the evening, and hitting the porch, just can just be, uh, just fill you with this uh, combined joy and nostalgia. It's just the absolute goodness of life all all wrapped up in a smell. Very sensual.
0: It's a great segue into my next question, which is where do you find inspiration?
1: Well, I I recently answered this question uh, uh, by saying the writings of uh, Wendell Berry and Fukuoka and um, the kind of happiness that I see in young people after they've been working here for a while or sometimes when you just look out over the garden at just the right moment, when there's a mist rising off the garden after a rainstorm, they're intangible moments that, or for instance, um, maybe there uh, some years ago, an old customer, she must've been about 85 years old, stepped out of the crowd. I had seen her plenty of times, but I had never talked to her probably. And she, just took me aside and she said i just want you to know how much beauty you bring to fayetteville and i you know it's just the type of thing that brings tears to your eyes because often i think we don't feel very appreciated um because people have absolutely no idea about how much work it is to get all that stuff to market but my own personal i'm also being inspired by the enthusiasm of the young people that come and work for us and that i see at the farming conference these days, I'm so happy that they feel drawn to this work um, and that, that there are the resources that they can actually have a chance at making it um, because there's so many great farmers who are out there now and there's so many written resources and online resources, but it's very inspiring to see them because their spirit is so much like ours. Um, and so th- When we started out, I'm sure that we were part of a kind of a smaller percentage of fringe elements that were trying to return to nature and figure out how can we live here with a low impact but high happiness quotient and how much work is it going to take? And we kind of very naive when we got started about how it was all going to work, but we just kept following our our noses to see where it was going to lead us and I feel the same spirit with these young people and I'm, I'm very happy for them and I, I hope they continue to do that because I'm sure for them it will play out in ways that right now are it's very unknown to them how it's all going to play out. but they're. When they get to be 60 years old, and if they can look back on a life that they they went in that direction and they feel satisfied with, it's a, a really wonderful thing in our culture because there's there are a lot of dark elements of our culture too.
0: Thank you for that, Mark.
1: So finally,
0: finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be?
1: Well, I would tell him things that he couldn't do at that point in the late 70s, but you could do now. And um, I'm gonna make an example of this young man that just, that's coming here tomorrow, but I think is very smart. He, he's he's wanted to have a farm ever since he was, said he was 16 years old, and he got a degree. He got a degree in horticulture, and then he went back to school and he got some training in carpentry and construction skills, and now he's in an RV, moving around. And spending some time at various farms, seeing where he would like to intern for the next year or two. And I think that's so smart, for one thing, that he got some solid horticultural training and some construction training, and that he has his own housing that he can go visit farms without making a, lo- a longer term commitment to them. Because, you know, it, when people ask me what, uh, how, sh- how can they learn about how can they they want to have a farm or they they think they're going to go have a farm and they have absolutely no training, no experience. It's just it's fries me to even think about them trying to make it without even trying to go get some some training, and so. Now we have all these networks like the Actualist or Wolfing or whatever, uh, even other possibilities for networking to find out who the farmers are. If, if I could have told myself, now take your experience from UCSC and seek out people who are as close as possible to what you think your ideal lifestyle is in farming, and who seem to have the same character about a same kind of feeling for it so i wouldn't have been happy working on for instance a 10 acre uh, uh production farm um that was just nothing but grinding hard work because that would have had zero appeal to me at the time uh, however if you get a waltz me into a place where people a together marketing scene and we're marketing locally and had a CSA and had all kinds of, uh, kind of like this farm. <laughs> <If> you, uh, <laughs> But you have to be able to, you have to have the right chemistry with people that you're going to spend much time with. And I think as a young person, it's not that easy uh, when you're that sensitive to separate out what is somebody's character, personal character, and what are the things that you can learn from them in spite of that character. <laughs> so, you know, at, Every farm is going to have its own set of personalities and its own uh, just the way they do things. And so I just think this young person is very smart that he has his, his own housing. He doesn't even have to be dependent on anyone for food or, or, or living in any group housing, which would also impinge on his experience. But he can go and taste what's out there and help out and then make a decision based on real experience about where does he want to actually go and train. So he's made a decision to go and train. And so, uh, you know, a lot of possibilities like that exist now that that might might have been there when I was younger. But um, uh, that's what that's that's what I would tell myself.
0: Mark, thank you so much for for sharing your life at Dripping Springs Garden with us. Really appreciate you taking the time and, and giving us all the insights from 32 years of farming.
1: Well, if we were on a. Um, Video call, I could show you all the wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: that, no. there, there. There is a picture in the show notes, so folks will be able to see that the wrinkles do exist. But, but right, the wrinkles only go where the smiles have been, right?
1: Yeah. Well, I hope so. <laughs> Thanks for inviting me, Chris. I appreciate. I enjoyed it.
0: All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 76 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast and that you can find the notes for this show at Farmer to Farmer podcast dot com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Cain. That's C.A.I.N. If you value the podcast, we just launched some new ways that you can support the show at Farmer to Farmer dot com slash donate. First, you can become a patron of the show by setting up a monthly donation through Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarters for ongoing donations First, you can become a patron of the show by setting up a monthly donation through Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarter for ongoing projects. It's a great way to support the -the behind-the-scenes effort that you don't hear at the Farmer to Farmer podcast, from research and scheduling to editing and getting the show online. Or you can do a one-time donation through PayPal, which would also be awesome. Third, if you use the Amazon.com link on FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com, Amazon kicks a percentage of what you spend back to the show, and it won't cost you a penny more. Go to FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com slash donate for more information and all of the relevant links. Thank you so much for your ongoing support. Since you're listening to the show, and since you just sat through my fundraising pitch, I'll bet you like being on my email list, the Flying Vega You can check that out at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com or PurplePitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. Your reviews and referrals make a huge difference in our ability to reach out to a growing circle of listeners. One more thing, I appreciate so much all of the guest suggestions that I receive through the suggestions form on FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com. Please let me know who you would like to hear from, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the tractor running.